Okay, good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Thanks for being here. Uh, you should all have a copy of the outline. It's uh, tonight's uh, looking at Romans chapter 7, winning the battle inside of me. So we're going to take a look at um, the battle inside of us and how St. Paul talks about this in Romans. And actually, um, next week is the sequel to tonight. So it's really important to at least... Uh, recognize that what you hear tonight really is going to, really you need next week to, otherwise you'll, come, you'll walk out of here tonight depressed and discouraged. Okay, <laughs> so, okay, so <laughs> right, so, so if you, so if you're, if, right, if you, if you can't be here next week, make sure you listen to it online, okay, <laughs> so, okay, so let's begin with some prayer, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. So, Lord God, we thank you and give you praise uh, how you have won victory for us over sin and death by the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you that this is your gift to us. For all of us have sinned, have fallen short of your glory, but uh, all of us have been justified by the gift of your son, Jesus. So we pray this evening, Lord, that we will come to uh, understand more deeply our need for the gift of your Son, the cross and resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit that recreates and changes our hearts and gives us a new heart. Help us, Lord, to come to appreciate more deeply why Jesus came, why the necessity of his coming was so uh, expedient and necessary for us in this world, for truly without him, uh, the battle inside of us would truly be a conflict we could never have victory over. So help us tonight to see your mercy, to see your graciousness, to see your love for us uh, in sending us the one who truly could bring us victory. And we pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, um, so you know, um, just to give you a little bit of background before we move on, Paul's letter to the Romans is considered in Christian literature, actually one of the greatest letters written because it talks about um, basic doctrines of Christian belief. Um, and we're, we're kind of t- tackling some of them. We can't tackle them all in just four weeks, but we're tackling some of them, some of the major ones. Uh, it's also been a letter of great controversy in Christian uh, history, particularly at the Reformation period with uh, Martin Luther. Um, and, and today, um, looking back over 500 years, the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church have come together a little bit more, have agreed on um, some fundamentals that Martin Luther was, was pushing for back in the 16th century and say, you know, well, he was probably, he was right in many respects, uh, given the context of the church that we lived in at that time. Uh, the church at that time was a church that uh, was, was morally corrupt in many ways. Uh, it would certainly make the headlines very easily day after day in our culture today. Um, and so one of the reasons why Martin Luther, I think, came onto the scene was because to try to correct some of the moral abuses that led to doctrinal abuses of that time. Um, you know, obviously a fallible human being, he didn't have it all right, you know, and the people he was dealing with didn't have it all right either in terms of uh, some of the Catholic officials. So... Um, looking back, we had the, the better perspective of 500 years now looking back. We can sort those things out, whereas in their time they could not. But the letter to the Romans was a centerpiece of that debate of that time. So, as I mentioned last week, the Council of Trent, which was the Catholic Church's response to the Protestant Reformation, um, t- 
took the letter of the Romans and, and brought it and captured it and, and, va and valued its, its teaching and integrated that into the council and trying to sort out some of these issues. So rather than shy away from that letter, the church at that time, the Catholic Church at that time, found great treasure in that letter and, and, and helping us understand what, how God's work of salvation was. So tonight we're going to be looking at uh, the battle within us. Um, and before we actually get to Romans chapter 7, verse 15, I'd like you to back up just a little bit. We're going to read chapter, or chapter 7, verse 7. So if you have your Bibles with you, and kind of look at that. Chapter 7, verse 7. And uh, just to give you what Paul is talking about here. Uh, what then shall we say that the law is sin? Now remember when he talks about the law, he's talking about the 613 precepts of the law. He's talking about the Sabbath observances. He's talking about the feast day observances that were required for all Jewish people to become part of. You know, um, He says, by no means. Yet, he says, if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. So Paul values the law um, because the law was a guide that heightened his awareness, his consciousness of what was right before the Lord and what wasn't right before the Lord. He said, I should not have known what, is what it is to covet if the law had not said you should not covet. So in other words, Paul wasn't just simply saying the law isn't about my outward observances, whether I'm right or wrong, but he says it has to do with the law helps me see what's inside my heart. So a true Jew, as he pointed out in Romans chapter 2, would be a, a Jew who, who um, inwardly followed the law, not just outwardly observe it, but made, wanted to make sure his heart was in the right place, her heart was in the right place. Uh, continuing verse 8, but sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, which wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. So in other words, the, the commandment pointed out to him what was sin in his heart. So it was like a mirror. Think of the, the commandments, uh, and now 613 of them, okay, so not just the 10, but 613. You'd look into them, and it would be like a mirror showing what was in his heart. That's what he's talking about here. Apart from the law... Sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Okay, So he's not obviously talking about physically dying, but he's talking here about the law helped me understand how helpless I was to truly overcome what was in my heart. Okay, So the law helped him understand... Uh, the things inside of him, and what were some of the things? Well, you know, uh, things like fears, anger, selfishness, egotism, pride, lust, sensuality, um, you know, uh, coveting things, um, envy, all those things. You can list the seven deadly sins, you know, seven times over if you wanted to. Paul was saying, this is inside of me, and the law has helped me understand what's inside of me. And therefore, he says... When the sin, when sin is revived, in other words, when the law helped me see the sin, understand what's inside of me, is that I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm more dead than I realize. I, mean, I have less, I don't have the ability to change my own heart. Again, you've heard me say before, Christianity is not a self-improvement course. Yeah, this isn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder. Paul is trying to tell us it won't work, it won't work at all. Okay, so. It's verse 10, the very commandment which promised life proved to, to be death to me. In other words, the commandments uh, that the Lord had given 
The purpose was to show them the way of life, but it's like saying, you know, it's showing me the way of life, but I can't get there. And um, verse 11, for sin, find an opportunity in the commandment, deceive me, and by it killed me. He uses the word deceive to actually, um, he, when he uses that, he's actually thinking of Genesis chapter 3, where Satan deceived uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, particularly Eve, and deceived her in the garden. And it, in other words, um, the law, the commandment, the law kind of showed me that I can't change myself and that I'm deceived into thinking that I could, just like Eve was deceived by the serpent, thinking that there was a better way outside of a relationship of trust with God. Okay, and then he goes on to say, verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So he has great reverence for the law uh, because of its, and, he's, and he sees it as a gift that the Lord gave to Israel through Moses and so on. So he values the law with great esteem, and and he of you know he's and if you read Philippians, like we're reading the Philippians now in the daily readings for Mass and everything, um, weekday Mass, um, he's saying that um, you know I'm I'm a Pharisee, which means he's a teacher of the law. Uh, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He went through his whole lineage. It's like he said, I keep every I'm I'm you know, I had a background that was stellar in in trying to be blameless, you know and. Uh, um, and so when he says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good, he's saying that the law was a gift given by the Lord to us, but its purpose was to show us that we have no ability to change ourselves at all, no ability to, to bring about our redemption, and that's what he's getting at. And I think in many respects, um, you know, uh, Martin Luther back in the 16th century was trying to get at the same thing at that point. Okay, so this is kind of a preview that kind of gets us ready now for, for um, looking at chapter, chapter uh, 7, verses 13 and following. We'll begin there, actually. I'm going to read through it, and we'll go back, and we'll go through the outlines I have here. So I'm actually reading the whole down to verse 25, through verse 25. It says, uh, did, did that which is good then bring death to me? Uh, meaning the law. Okay. Uh, by no means. It, it, it was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We know that the law is spiritual, uh, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for, but for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now you're gonna, as we read this, you're going to see the interior conflict that Paul is going through. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So then it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me. That is in my flesh. We'll look at, the, we'll look at what flesh is in just a minute. But I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good, but I want, but the evil I do not, I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I of myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, we stop here, of course, tonight. Um, you know, but if Paul was, if you were reading, if you were in the congregation and somebody was reading this letter, they would continue right on. They went, there's no such thing as chapter 8, verse 1, okay? We, this came in much later for our uh, abilities. But so, so Paul goes into what we'll talk about next week, was, which is life in the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look now. Um, verses 13 through four, and 14 are just continuing on what we just finished with verses 7 through 12. Um, Again, for him, he's emphasizing that the law is good. No problem with that. Um, and the commandments show me what sin is like. Now, when he uses the word in verse 14, carnal, he's talking here about the drives in his own heart of fear, lust, anger, sensuality, egotism, pride, envy, all those things. He's not referring to our, our physical being. Uh, Paul had, like any good Hebrew and like... Uh, consistent with the scripture has a great value for our physical uh, body and our makeup It's part of our dignity is how God made us. So when he uses the word flesh or carnal, he's talking about the dries of my heart that are uh, opposed to the Lord, you know, like uh, rage, uh, you know, like uh, uh, dissensions and stuff like that. So that's what he's referring to there. Okay. So verse 15, I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So if you go to your outlines here, we're going to look at six emotions that characterize St. Paul in describing this inner conflict. So the first in verse 15 is confusion. I don't, I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what is right, but I can't. I do what I don't want to do, what I hate. So there's a there's a true division in him. There's a true, um, you know, there's a true sense of battle going on inside of him. Walt Kelly, the famous cartoonist, said that I meant the enemy and it's me. Right. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying here. I meant the enemy. Guess what? It's me. So he's expressing here his battle within himself, and there's a confusion within himself. Notice the eyes, the I words here. I do not understand, uh, for I do not do what I want. I uh, want, but I do, I do the very thing I hate. The constant reference to I, the pronoun there uh, that's used like six times here, is like, it's, it's a real key to understanding this chapter, chapter 7, because Paul is expressing the battle inside of him and the struggle he's having here with that. So what's the battle? The battle is inside of him, he is, he is wrestling with do, be, acting and living and thinking in a way that he knows is opposing the Lord, yet he doesn't want to oppose the Lord. I'm sure we all can identify with that, right? <laughs> We're going to see tonight that the battle still goes on inside of us, but as I mentioned uh, the Lord has made great provision for us. We'll, hopefully we'll come away tonight really understanding the necessity of Jesus coming uh, for us because if he hadn't, that battle would rage and, you know, it's kind of like a tennis match and you're not very good at tennis. Okay? <laughs> so you can know how many matches you end up losing, you know, over that. Okay, number two there. Um, I, he says here, I know perfectly well that what I'm doing is wrong 
and my bad conscience proves that I agree with these laws I am breaking. So guilt and shame characterize uh, Paul's struggle. Now, when he says here, verse 16, now if I do uh, what I do not want, he's talking here about his conscience. And the word conscience has to, means a, um, having full knowledge of something uh, as being right or wrong. And Paul is, Paul is saying here, I'm not kidding myself. I know what's wrong, and I know that I have knowledge of that, full knowledge of that, but I keep doing it anyway. Okay, so um, he, you know, he understands what it is that he's supposed to be doing and be, yet he can't get there, and he has full awareness and consciousness of that. So guilt and shame are the consequence of that. Number three, he says here, but I can't help myself because I'm no longer doing it. It is inside of me that it is stronger than I that it makes me do these evil things. He's talking here about almost a sense of compulsion. So compulsions and addictions would fill here, number three. Paul is, finds himself moving in a direction that he would like to see stopped, but he's, he can't. it's not stopping for him. He feels like he's just drifting in a direction that he can't put the stop sign on that. Verse seven, so, that, so then it is no longer I that do it, okay, but sin which dwells within me. So he's, he's pointing to some other force in him is propelling him in a direction that he doesn't really want to go. He has full awareness and consciousness it's not right, but yet I'm moving in that direction anyway. Okay, so. So uh, in our modern language, we use language like compulsions, addictions, you know, that describe kind of a, a certain movement in a direction that we rather not go, don't want to go, but we just feel like we're driven to go in that direction. That's what Paul is admitting about sin in his heart. You know. Letter to the Hebrews says there's pleasure for sin in a short time or for a short time, um, which means that the short time and the pleasure ends, okay, and the payback begins at that point. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says the wages of sin is death. You know, somebody once said that sin pays, pay, has a wage to it. You know, uh, Proverbs says the way of the transgressor is hard. Or it also says in other places, your sin shall find you out. So in other words, awareness that sin has a payback after a while. Um, it's not all, you know, it's not, it's not a free ride. Sin has, because it's the way we were made. We were made to live a certain way, and, and, and when we're not living that certain way, and we're living contrary to the way of the Lord, then the sin has its consequences in us. And a lot of times people say, you know, God is judging. Well, he set up the way things are that there's an internal judgment going on. It's not like he has to be up there sending lightning bolts. He's made us in such a way that if we continue to walk in sin, sin will have its own judgment on us because it will have its own consequences. You know, the wages of sin is death. It has its own consequences. He doesn't have to do anything to intervene. That It's just the way he made, made us and made the world. He didn't make us to sin. He made a fish to live in water. He did not make a fish to live out of water. He made us not to sin. When we sin, we're out of water. It's contrary to our nature and therefore has its own judgment on us if, if, 
if it doesn't, you know, if we don't, if there's not some kind of a way to stop that. Okay, number four. I know I'm rotten inside as far as my old sin sinful nature is concerned. Self-condemnation. Another version I was reading earlier says, for I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. Now, Paul doesn't say that he's a bad person, like, oh, you know, a bad self-esteem, I have to go see my therapist, you know, and get medication for it. He's not talking about that at all. What he's talking about here is he's saying that, that in, my, in my heart, which rises up out of me, there are these drives that are opposed to the Lord, fear, anger, rage, etc., etc. You know, and he says, that's the flesh. That's, the dry, that's what's rising up out of me. He's not saying that he would affirm a very aligned with the biblical tradition that he was created in goodness and as every human being is, that he was made in goodness. Now, this differs from our Protestant brothers and sisters where they believe in what's called total depravity, okay, which means the human being, and this came out of the, this came out of the Reformation, actually. It's um, held uh, particularly by what's called reform theologians. Uh, they're of the John Calvinist tradition, which goes way back to the 16th century. And they believe that the human person is, there's no good thing in the human person. They're rotten right on through to the core, okay. Um, and as Catholics, we would say that, yeah, we, without grace, we're, we're pretty bad. We're up, we're like, like, you know, going down a creek um, without a paddle, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, but, you know, God didn't make us rotten, or we, because of the fall, we're not rotten completely through, okay? Because, even though there's the fall, we've fallen from great heights of where God made us to be, you know, there is still so much value and good in us as a human being. So, for example, we have emotions that can be good. We love, we, even the atheists will recognize the value of sharing, you know, for example. Um, you know, um, so uh, even the person that is the atheist in the foxhole becomes a believer. That means there's something of innate within them that turns to the Lord at that moment, you know. Um, great humanitarian efforts and the people were agnostics or atheists, you know, that, of that nature. So, so in other words, there is a certain sense of goodness penetrating and working in us still, despite the fall. That differs from our Protestant brothers and sisters, but of the, of the traditions I mentioned, the Reformed tradition, um, and so on. So, again, and that came out of Martin Luther, um, and part of it was uh, he suffered psychologically with this, just this drive in him to be perfect, and he would oftentimes go to confession every single day and spend several hours in confession. And believe me, the, the monks in his monastery just dread it when he came. You know? <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, you know, we've heard this story before. You know? <laughs> but so he was trying to find, figure out how can, I be, how can I be justified before God? And he struggled over great guilt over that. And, um, and so his... That, more, that total depravity concept kind of flowed out of that time. Now, John Calvin picked up on it and took it further than Martin Luther. And Calvin lived, uh, um, lived uh, he was a younger version. No, let's just I take that back. He wasn't a younger version of Luther, but he was a younger person when Luther was beginning his Reformation, so to speak. Okay, and, uh, but Calvin gave um, theology and substance to the Reformation that, um, Luther got it moving in a certain direction. Calvin gave it the body of thought 
that carried it 500 years into the, into today, you know. So, so that's so Paul is saying here the self condemnation. What's he mean by that then? If it's not like you know, woe is me, my self esteem is pretty beaten up today. You know, he's he's saying that before the Lord, I recognize that I'm alienated from Him. You know, I'm separated from Him, and I can't I can't walk blameless before Him, which He's asked me to do. I know I can't do that within myself. That's the, that's the self-condemnation he's talking about here. We tend to read that from our 20th century, 21st century lens as being psychologically deprived. Paul would not say that in his time. He would say, in my relationship to God, I have fallen way short, and, I, there's, no, and there's no way I can possibly reconcile that, get that back. Okay. Number five here, no matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right, but I want to, but I can't. When I, uh, when I want to do good, I don't, and when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, it's, it is plain where the trouble is. Still, so sin still has me in its evil grasp. Here we see number uh, five is frustrations. Yeah. You can hear it, can't you, in his words? <laughs> So Paul is, Paul is saying that um, this is, the Bible calls this the law of sin. So in other words, um, just like, for example, um, if you were to get up on top of your car and you want to jump, and, but you want to fly, okay? <laughs> and uh, you did do that. You find out that the law of gravity pulled you down, so you couldn't fly at that point, okay? So Paul is saying that this is the law of sin in us. And there's nothing we can do to offset that. Just like you can't offset the law of gravity unless you bring some other forces into it. You know? So Paul is saying that the law of sin in us is creating this state of frustration and alienation from living in a relationship of peace, of right relationship with God. And he, and he knows that. Like you're, there's something deep within us that says, I know I'm not in a right relationship with God. I, I can feel this pull in me away from him, you know, even though I don't necessarily want to be away from him, you know. Because remember, Paul had the law, 613 precepts of the law, that told him how to get closer to God, how to be in right relationship with him. And um, if you kept, if you broke one, you broke all of them, okay, because God required perfection. You know, um, because he, remember, he didn't make us to sin. So to, to say, okay, I'll accept you 65% of the way, you know, he'll like say, no, because that's not the way I made you. I made you be 100%, you know, like me, you know. So if you miss it by like 1%, oh, give the guy a break. No, it's not the way I made you. I didn't make you to be 1% sin. Here's another way to think about it. You're, you're scrambling eggs, so you have five good eggs, and you crack them into your skillet, you know, and you have this sixth egg. <laughs> And you, you crack that six egg into the skillet, and guess what? It's rotten. So you say, oh, okay, well, I'll just try to pull that rotten egg out of there, and the other five will be still good. You can't do that, can you? No, because the rotten egg contaminated all the other five, so the, all of them are rotten now. That's what he's saying sin has done to us. You know, that's the law of sin that the Bible calls. It's like the law of gravity. 
lessons. Okay, um, number six here. It seems to be a fact of life that when, uh, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. In my mind, I want to do, be God's willing servant, but instead I find myself still enslaved to sin, uh, and that is discouragement and despair. You can hear that again. Paul says, I want to be the Lord's servant, living blameless, bef- blameless before him, but I find myself still enslaved to sin. Verse, my, this, another version says, verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in, my, in myself. So he, he loves the law because it shows him how to be blameless before God. But, verse 23, I see in my members another law, law of gravity, so to speak, or the law of sin, at work with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Members, again, means his heart, that it finds its filtered way throughout his entire uh, life's attitudes, actions, and so on. Okay. So this, so we, what we looked at is six um, kind of emotions that describe the battle that Paul finds himself in. And the reason for that is because he has two natures in him. So as a Christian, we are going to see now where we have two natures. Now, Paul is writing this as a Christian. He's not a non-Christian here. He's a believer, you know. He's a follower of Jesus. So he's writing this to describe uh, the nature of the law and the power of sin and how the law couldn't touch the power of sin. It could just point out, hey, something's not right here. Here's what it looks like, but I can't change it for you. Sorry. (laughs) Have you seen that commercial lately where there's the person... That uh, the one that comes to my mind is that uh, people are robbing the bank, and the guy's there as the, the security guard, you know, and you know, and like, and, and of course the people on the floor are saying, "Hey, do something," you know. Oh, I'm not, I'm just here to tell you there's a problem. I, I'm not going to do. I'm, I can't change anything. Well, that's what the law is like. The law is here to tell us there's a problem, you know, and they can't change us. Now Paul's going to write here and describe a little bit further. We're going to look at it in just a few minutes here. Um, about the two natures inside of us. Okay, so if you turn over, I think it's turnover, right? You turn over? Okay. Um, okay, so Paul says here, this is a different version of this. I love to do God's will so far as my new nature is concerned. Now, the new nature here, he's talking about being baptized into Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Next, we're going to look more uh, deeply at what that means for the Christian life, and it means everything, by the way. It's totally revolutionary. It's like, you know, it is like the, it's like everything. Okay? And then he says, but there is something else deep within me in my lower nature that is at war with my mind and wins the fight and makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Okay, so in other words, Paul is describing something about himself, and that's the two natures inside of him. So verse 24, so see how it is, my new life tells me to do what is right, or to do right, but the old nature that is still inside of me loves to sin. Oh, what a terrible predicament I'm in. I'm sure we all have felt that, right, inside of us. Gosh, you know, I really would like to retaliate against that person, and I probably would get in trouble if I did, you know, particularly if I did some kind of violence to them. So in my mind, I'm going to wish bad upon them. I'm not going to do anything though. So Paul would say, hey, your law of sin is rising up within you and you guess what? You have a, you have a divided heart and you give it into your lower nature, which is the, called the flesh. He calls it the flesh. 
Okay. So we're going to look at the battle inside of us and, and look at how we can, um, God's plan for the, our victory, God's battle plan for our victory. All right. So let's take a look, beginning with verse 24 and 25. Okay, on the paper here, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin? Thank God. The answer is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When Paul says through Jesus Christ, our Lord, it's kind of like his um, biblical shorthand for saying through the, through the life, the perfect life of Jesus, perfect life of the Son of God, through his uh, teaching, through his death, primarily his death and his resurrection, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's referring to by that. It's like his shorthand. Um, for Paul, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was everything for winning the battle for us and was sacramentally expressed through the sacrament of baptism where our new nature is given to us at that point. Now, again, I'll make a little bit of a distinction here. Um, many of our Protestant brothers and sisters, um, particularly, again, I'll go back to the Reformed tradition, the Calvinistic tradition, and so on, believe that baptism is rather important because they see it as a, a they call it a, a ordinance, some call it a sacrament. Um, but we don't really change our nature. It's just an outward expression of, um, gosh, I'm a Christian, I'm standing for Christ, I want to belong to him. So it becomes a matter of public commitment. Whereas the Catholic uh, uh, tradition, has, theology has always said that no, in baptism you get a whole new nature. It's like um, you have an old nature called Adam, and when you're baptized, whether as an infant or an adult, uh, you get a whole brand new nature, and that nature is the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and you are born again as a follower of Jesus. That's a legitimate Catholic phrase, by the way, used a lot in our baptism sacraments. Um, it's also used at other places, too, in our liturgy, but it's a legitimate phrase to say, I'm a born-again Catholic. And we mean by that is... And baptism, I get a whole new nature. You know? Our Protestant brothers and sisters say you don't get the new nature in baptism. Baptism doesn't do that for you. It's an outward sign. Um, so there's a, a very strong distinction and difference there how we understand baptism uh, uh, between us and our Protestant. Most of the Protestant traditions agree to that, um, but particularly the Reformed or Calvinist tradition um, holds to that. So, so what's the first thing in the battle here is I must deepen my understanding of Christ. Part of God's plan, battle plan, is that we deepen our understanding of what's taking place for us in Christ, what's happened to us in Christ. And that's, in all honesty, one of the reasons why for this series here is to really talk about looking at Paul's letter to the Romans, what happened to us in Christ? What, what, what did Jesus actually do for us? You know, why, was, why was it so significant? Romans 6, 12, and 13 says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give it uh, into its lustful desires. Instead, give yourselves completely to God since you've been given new life. And for us as Catholics, new life comes through the waters of baptism. That's where it begins. And then for the new spiritual principle of life in Jesus Christ lifts me out of the old vicious cycle of sin. Romans Eight two, and we're going to look more at that next week. But just to kind of give you some thought on that, is that a new spiritual principle of life, or another way of saying it, we get a new nature. We get God's God's nature, divine nature, living in us, called the Holy Spirit. 
So you get, a, you get literally in baptism, I get in baptism, a heart transplant. We get a new heart. It's called the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel prof- prophesied that. Ezekiel 36 said that looked for a time in which we would get a new heart and a new spirit. The stony heart would be taken from us. We'd be given a heart of flesh. Heart of flesh in the scripture always meant a heart of obedience and trust um, and intimacy with the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit is that gift given to us who gives us the new heart. And that comes for us in baptism. That's why we read, we read as Catholics, particularly the words of Jesus in Mark 16 when he says, go out to the world, those that who are baptized are saved and those who reject baptism are condemned. We actually say that that's, we take that literally, that baptism is a big deal for us because it gives us a new nature. So in the, in the waters of baptism, Christ becomes a resident, or the Holy Spirit becomes a resident that lives in us. We're called a tabernacle of God's dwelling. Uh, we, 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 um, he dwells in us. Um, so another way of saying it, Jesus in baptism becomes the Lord of our life, or the CEO of our life, or the boss of our life, whatever words you want to use. Um, or you could say it this way, in baptism, we could say, put a big sign up there saying, I'm under new management. <laughs> now, you know, we've expressed this in our sacrament, liturgy of baptism, even with a baby. You know, we say that this child has gone from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now, that baby's awful cute and, you know, cuddly and, you know, adorable, but actually that baby belongs in the dominion of Satan until that child is baptized. Our liturgy actually says that. That's why we say this child is going from, that's why if you've been to an infant baptism, a priest or deacon will pray a prayer of exorcism over the child before the child is baptized. So, Because our nature is of Adam, but in baptism we become we have the divine nature in us that is the person of the Holy Spirit within us. So you've heard me talk an awful lot about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is so important because when the Holy Spirit becomes awakened and alive in our life, he makes all this come alive because he's, he's the principle that makes our Christian life run, basically. Uh, he, he's, the, he's the new heart, or as Paul is going to talk about in Romans 8, the new law is given to us. So that's why the Holy Spirit is so... For the Holy Spirit to be alive and released in our life is so critical to living... Uh, the kind of Christian life that uh, that is truly a new way of living for us, you know, and being free of the patterns of sin that we all have to deal with. Okay, so notice what Paul says here, um, verse 24 and 25. He says, uh, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, body here does not mean physical body, like, because Paul would say, yeah, hey, your physical body is good, don't worry about it. He's talking about the drives in us, the, um, you've heard of people say, you have to examine a person by the body of their work. Okay, so here Paul is saying that the body of death in me, that is the drives of lust and sensuality and anger and fear and rage and egotism and all that. He says, that body within me, he says, who will deliver me from that? And he says, through Jesus Christ, through Jesus' perfect life as a human being, his death, resurrection, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's who will deliver me. And when Paul mentions the word deliver, he's saying, rescue me, uh, save me. It's almost like a person out at sea uh, just kind of um, idly floating out there and having no power, 
to help themselves get to safety until somebody comes along and rescues them. That's what he means by deliver. Okay. So it's literally bringing you from one place of total helplessness into a place where you have a whole new beginning, whole new life. Okay, so the second is, um, let's read the scripture here, verse 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So number two is, um, I must detect and disarm the lie I'm believing. Okay, so Jesus said that Satan was a liar. John 8, verse 44, he's a liar. In the garden, of um, Satan lied to our first parents, lied to Eve particularly, saying, you know, if you eat from this fruit of this tree, guess what? You know, you'll be God, like God, and God's told you not to do that because he doesn't want you to be like him. Uh, the point was, in their nature, they already were like him, you know. Um, but so he... So what happened was when they disobeyed God and believed the lie of the serpent, uh, they found out that the serpent had tricked them, literally deceived them. Guess what? You're going to die now. And so physical death, spiritual death came into the world at that point. It wasn't, it wasn't around up until that point. So the lie, every sin has a lie to it. Every sin has uh, a lie at its kernel or its heart. And when we sin, we are deceiving ourselves, basically. So first letter of John, verse 1 says, you know, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. So if you look at the two bullet points there, behind every self-defeating act is a lie. And to stop defeating myself, I must reveal the lie or own or acknowledge it. And Jesus says in John 8, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So when we, when we do like an um, examination of conscience and maybe preparing for you know, confession or something, you know, one of the things to think about is, okay, if I notice certain patterns in me or of sin that seem to be showing up a lot, then I have to ask myself the question, what's the lie I'm believing there? What's the lie behind that pattern of sin that I keep buying into, you know? Um, and that will help begin to defeat that pattern because um, then once I know what the lie is, I say, well, Lord, what's the truth you're trying to show me that I'm not buying, that I'm not listening to, but I'm listening to this lie? Because when Eve and Adam fell in the garden, they believed a lie about God that he was not trustworthy. He was, he was holding out on them, you know? And here's the thing about the lie was, and this is the thing, that our first parents had no evidence that God was, was not trustworthy. He'd been only good and gracious to them. They had absolutely nothing, no, you know, no, nothing, not even a speck that God could be anything but what he is towards them, which was good and gracious. And yet they still decide to believe a lie about God that was totally unverifiable on their part. And that's, that's what Satan did to them. That's oftentimes what he does with us, is that he gets us to believe a lie about God, and 
um, that leads to my pattern of sin in my life. But the truth of the Lord's word is meant to free our hearts, as Jesus says here. So. Okay, number three. Um, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so God can heal you. When a believing person prays, great things happen. Okay, so um, the Catholic Church has understood this um, in part to be, not totally, but in part to be kind of a seminal beginning of the sacrament reconciliation. Confess your sins uh, to each other. So number three is I must share my struggle with another. So for us as Catholics, we've understood that one place to share that struggle is in the confessional. Now, it's not the only place, obviously. We could have a small group of Christians that we gather with and share our struggles there, which is great. Um, you know, uh, we have a good confidant or friend that we may share, a spiritual director perhaps, uh, share, we may share our struggles with. And But the point that this letter or James makes is that as we confess our sins, as we share our struggles, then God can heal us with it. Uh, there's something about in the confession of something that we start to get on the road of healing of our hearts. And, then, you know, that's been certainly verified in today in our culture, particularly through recovery groups and things like that, where sharing the struggle is oftentimes a pathway to healing, at least a beginning pathway for healing for us. So the sacrament reconciliation serves a great gift and a value to us, is that as we share the struggle in the sacrament of reconciliation, then uh, we open our heart up to a grace that flows from the cross and the resurrection of Jesus beginning to heal the wound deep within us and beginning to also address the lie that we've been leaving, beginning to free us of a lie that we have been living and even believing. And so confession serves that. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, live according to your new life in the Holy Spirit, then you won't do what your sinful nature craves. We're going to talk more next week about how we live that new life uh, by the Holy Spirit. Um, but certainly one way to begin moving that direction is to is to recognize the need for us to confess our our patterns of sin uh, for us as Catholics, particularly the sacrament of reconciliation, but also, like I said, other venues that we may use to help share our struggles with other people that can help us, that can really pray with us and give us godly counsel in those areas as well. Um, okay, so... Um, So they're the so one way to think of this, resolutions are good and helpful. Like sometimes we make resolutions. I want to change something. It's a good start, but resolutions run out of gas, as we all know, right? <laughs> um, we need to have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us and tap into His power. That goes well beyond resolutions, good resolutions. Um, and we're going to talk more about that next week. Tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit so that we go beyond simply good resolutions to change, but actually tap into the power of God dwelling in us so we can change. Yeah. And by the way, that is the basis of our whole sacramental life, by the way, is tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit living in us so that we can change. Okay, so let's take about 15 minutes, you would, um, and just maybe talk about what spoke to you in tonight's teaching, and then we'll come back and have some large group discussion.